This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 26, Greedy Hospital. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey guys, happy Friday. I have been planning a Grady episode since day one, and yet the story of medical care and medical facilities in Atlanta is pretty complicated, mostly because there is always going to be the story of white and black, as there always is in the city. And so I was struggling on how to present this. Do I do an episode that's on all the white hospitals and maybe then one on all the black hospitals? And I just didn't know what the right answer was. Grady Hospital is certainly an institution that warrants its own episode, but I always strive to be really clear and organized with my topics. So all of this rambling to say that I don't know if I did it in the best way. But this week, we are going to talk about the iconic Atlanta Public Hospital, Grady. But you can't talk about Grady without mentioning the first medical facilities our city had. Grady would provide some care for Atlanta's Black residents um, and eventually fully integrate, which we'll talk about later. But an entire episode focusing on the medical care of the African-American community, as well as the doctors and nurses that made that happen, is not far behind. First thing I need to do is give a shout out to a book called Atlanta's Living Legacy, A History of Grady Memorial Hospital and Its People. Yes, it's expensive, and it's not in any damn library that I am able to check books out of, but it truly contains every piece of information you may care to know about this hospital. And as I always say, my job here is to give you an overview and a few interesting stories, but if this sparks an interest, definitely pick this up. I have a link in the show notes. So let's begin with a short history of hospital care in the United States. And I'll start with saying it wasn't a pretty picture. While there were hospitals in the 1700s, the standardization of medical care didn't really flourish until the 1800s. For most of the 19th century, hospitals were not associated with care. They're not the place you went to be diagnosed and treated. They were the place you went to die. And we also did not have the highest quality physician. This is the era of quackery, or snake oil salesman. And to give you a better understanding of the extent of our medical knowledge, in 1799, George Washington, our first president, died. And his death is listed to be caused by a throat infection. He got caught in the rain, didn't change out of his clothes, and then the following days developed a really bad sore throat. So it turns out all of our moms are right. (laughs) And maybe it was strep throat, Maybe not, we'll never know, Um, but he was in so much pain he had several physicians come to treat him. And the way they treated him was by draining almost half of his body's blood, making him drink a mixture of molasses, butter, and vinegar, which he almost choked on. Uh, One guy put a blister on his throat to, quote, balance the fluids in his body. Not surprisingly, Washington was dead just a few days later. So long story short, this is the kind of level of medical care that we have. Just before the start of the Civil War, teaching hospitals began to appear in large cities, and a teaching hospital would be attached or associated with a medical school, and the idea is to provide a steady stream of patients for emerging doctors to practice on. And prospective medical students at that time were actually really choosy about where they went to college. So if you did not have the patient base, then you're unlikely to get people to enroll. And the patients in these teaching hospitals were charged a daily fee to have a bed. The Civil War was actually a catalyst that changed the public's ideas about hospitals 
for the first time you had a ton of middle-class women volunteering um, in the warriors. So it's kind of that the disconnect between the public and the medical field that that fields was shortened and people were able to see people suffering, what was happening. So there was an interest in the public to care um, for those that needed help and maybe couldn't afford it. The first hospital in the state of Georgia opened in Savannah in 1804, and they called it the Savannah Poorhouse and Hospital Society. Its main purpose was to treat sick sailors. In 1818, in Augusta, Georgia, they got a hospital that was again to treat the sick poor. Now, if you lived in rural parts of the state of Georgia, you're dependent on either getting to the biggest town near you or really traveling physicians or midwives. That's the only medical care you're going to see. Dr. Joshua Gilbert is credited as the first physician in Atlanta. Born in South Carolina, he attended the medical college in Augusta. And after graduating in 1845, he moved to Atlanta. Another doctor that we often hear about is Dr. Noel Dolvignier. Originally born in France, he immigrated to Atlanta in 1848, practicing medicine all the way through 1877. And his claim to fame, so to speak, is that he was one of the only physicians to stay in the city throughout the Battle of Atlanta. He was imprisoned by the Union Army, but continued to treat both Union and Confederate soldiers. If you're a Gone with the Wind fan, the doctor in the movie is modeled, or said to be modeled, after Dr. Dolvigny. Dr. John Westmoreland graduates from the Medical College of Georgia in 1843, and two years later, he set up shop in Atlanta. Once he gets there, he's really passionate about starting a medical school in the city. And he gathers up a group of physicians, and he convinces the city government to allow them to use City Hall for lectures. They had to promise to only do it in the winter so they wouldn't interrupt court proceedings. In 1854, the state grants them a charter to form the Atlanta Medical College, and the first cornerstone is laid in 1855, which is or was at the corner of current Jesse Hill Jr. Drive and Armstrong, so basically right next to the current Grady Hospital. Dr. Westmoreland is so passionate about his cause that he actually runs for a House of Representatives seat just to get funding for his hospital. And he did. The building would be ready for classes in 1859. It did cost money to get treated in the school clinic, so they would actually promise slave owners that care for their slaves would be free if their condition was found untreatable or incurable. I don't want to get in the weeds explaining all of the schools that formed to make this happen, but Emory University would be born in 1915 from this early college. And Atlanta Medical College would stand through the Civil War with the help of Dr. Avignier that we just talked about. And the story is that he misled Union troops so that they wouldn't burn the building. The famous story is that he took a bunch of, I think maybe a bunch of Confederate soldiers and dressed them up like wounded people and put them in some beds and said, oh, you know, you don't want to burn this. There's sick people here. Now, the crazy thing is that the building survives the war, but it does not survive Atlanta tearing down buildings. <laughs> so in 1906, that building would be demolished. Now, let's go back to Atlanta in 1853 for a minute. This was the year that we're hit with a smallpox epidemic. And although Atlanta was one of the healthiest cities in the country, we begin to see the need for a public hospital. Smallpox victims were quarantined in a special facility that was held on Fair Street, which is near Oakland Cemetery. But once the smallpox thing goes away, so do these structures. It wouldn't be until 20 years later 
that the city council forms a committee to take the lead in establishing a hospital. But that same year, we have something called the Panic of 1873, and nothing anywhere in the entire United States is getting built. The first iterations of a hospital in Atlanta would be the Atlanta Benevolent Home, which was organized by Mrs. William Turner. And let me just point out how much I hate seeing women being mentioned this way. Like, we cannot even know her first name. But rant over. Um, That would happen in 1874, and it was purposely built to care for indigent white women and white children only. By the 1880s, the poor of Atlanta were being cared for by six physicians in private practice. And what the city did is they would assign each physician to one of the six wards. They'd get a small annual salary, but this is before cars. So imagine you're a doctor, you have to attend house calls all over your ward, and this is in addition to your quote-unquote real job. As you can imagine, it's not overly effective, and many of the city's poor are going unseen. There are two private hospitals in operation in the city at this time. St. Joseph started in 1880 with a group of nuns from Savannah. Um, It was private. It would treat anyone, regardless of creed or nationality, but it did draw the line at race. So it was a white-only hospital. Central Ivy Street Hospital was also private, opened in 1883, and it would be the first to accept black patients. The problem with that one is that within the first five years of being open, there's investigations and outcry over the treatment of patients and the issue that African Americans were found to die at much faster rates there. By 1888, any money that the city had been giving to Ivy Street to care for the indigent was cut off. Once again, the talks of a public hospital arise. King's Daughters Hospital is founded in New York in 1866, but fellow Episcopalian Atlanta women wanted to open one in our city, initially with the idea of it being just a children's ward. Although they were associated with St. Luke's Episcopal Church, the hospital was to be non-sectarian. And It's kind of a longer story, but there was a bunch of men that wanted to do a public hospital too, so they would combine forces um, with these men, and then together they would open this hospital for service in 1888. The board of directors in this hospital um, were the big names in Atlanta, so Henry Grady and Samuel Inman, just to name a few. Henry Grady certainly needs his own episode, and it will come one day, um, as a proponent of the New South and kind of Atlanta's civic booster, But he was also a fan of opening a public hospital. Other U.S. cities that were smaller than Atlanta had already had theirs, and he wanted to keep up. Most people think, rightly so, that because we've named this Grady Hospital, Henry Grady must have been a huge part or impact on its formation. But that's not really the case. The truer tale is that Grady happened to die just before Christmas in 1889, and his fellow white male Atlantans wanted to honor him by naming the new hospital after him. The unsung hero, if you will, that really raised the money for Grady Hospital would be Joseph Hirsch. Born in Germany in 1845, he came first to New York, then Marietta, and then Ackworth. During the war, he serves in the 11th Georgia Infantry, and after the war, he starts a company with his brother Morris. But it doesn't stop there. Joseph was president of a paint company, a bank, basically a leading businessman and philanthropist in the city. He was city councilman as well and had a really close friendship with Henry Grady. 
And I, I think that really close friendships seemed to inspire him to raise capital for this hospital. He went on to serve as the board of directors for two decades. Most people affectionately call Joseph Hirsch the father of Grady, and Grady Hospital would also be called the greatest monument to Jewish philanthropy. The council put up $30,000, and Hirsch was in charge of raising the rest. Another huge donor whose name may ring a bell is Jacob Elsis. I talked about him in episode 10 on Cabbage Town, but his financial contributions made Grady a reality. And the hospital committee put James English in charge of finding the site and Jacob Elsis in charge of building. And Jacob would tour the country looking at existing hospitals that he wanted to model and just kind of deciding what would work best. His favorite was located in Rhode Island, and he ended up hiring the firm that designed it to design Grady. Now, James English found the perfect piece of land. It was situated on a high ground, it was one block from the streetcar, and it was very close to Atlanta Medical College. The land was owned by L.P. Grant, who I talked about in episode four, and when he found out it was being used for a public hospital, he knocked $1,000 off the price. The initial plans were to build three wards for black residents that were facing Jenkins Street, so in the back. And calling these buildings, I use that term loosely, Um, they were built purposely to be temporary, made of plywood, and the idea was that a quote-unquote real black hospital would soon be built. I think that there were plans of one being built near Spelman, um, but just it never happened. There were two brick wards to be built for whites, um, and like I said, the blacks were made of plywood. The cornerstone of Grady Hospital would be laid in 1890, even though they didn't have all the money to build. I mean, talk about gumption. Um, like They're like, no, we're, we're laying this and we don't know how we're going to do it. In order to save some money, James English used his favorite convict leasing or chain gangs to grade the lot. It saved them $3,000. And I've mentioned this before, but I don't think it ever stops being relevant Chain gangs of the 1890s and 1900s Atlanta are majority black men arrested for petty crimes and being forced to clear the land for a public hospital where, if they are in need of care, they'll be in the back in temporary structures. So I'm going to let that sink in for a second. These convicts would also be used in medical experiments by Grady doctors in the years to come, but I hope to talk about that in a future episode. So back to the story. As expected, with no money, construction stalls for the first year. The hospital was finally dedicated in 1892, but they were actually still short on money. To raise the last few hundred dollars, they held a charity baseball game at Brisbane Park, which I talked about in episode 23, which was fitting because Henry Grady was a huge fan of baseball and very important in Atlanta baseball. Officially opening on June 2nd, 1892, the first patient was actually rejected for two reasons, not being a resident of Atlanta, and they were incurable. So this is an interesting point. Public hospitals would normally not accept patients that were terminal or incurable, and that actually spawns the need for a place for them, and Atlanta would have a hospital for the incurables that opened in 1900 on the site of what is now the public library. But the first real Grady Hospital patient was a black railroad employee named Alan Kimball. And the story is that he came and he never left. 
After being treated, he returned to the hospital to work as an orderly and eventually an ambulance driver. In 1894, the Grady Hospital Aid Association formed, and it was comprised of wealthy white women, as those groups at the time usually were. Their main goal was to establish a children's ward and a maternity ward, and they were successful in fully funding a white-only children's ward that would open in 1897. And there's a historical picture uh, I'm going to try to put on the site that um, shows it built right next to the building that still exists today. By 1898, the state grants a charter to open the Grady School of Nursing. And these were only white women. So the first class has 19 women, and they would live in the school, sleeping on the second floor. But the most interesting piece of information I learned is that to gain admission, they needed a letter asserting their moral character, usually from a minister. And when I say character, we all know that means sexual activity. And there was a practical reason for this. They wanted to ensure that the women were not carrying sexually transmitted diseases, mainly syphilis. So at this time, syphilis is running rampant. It's one of the leading causes of mortality, and we did not know how to treat it or how to cure it. So you didn't really want to nurse with an incurable sexual disease. The earliest Grady ambulance was pulled by horse and had to cover 26 square miles. I think the number of calls from 1899 is recorded as 270, and then a decade later, they're doing 25% more. I've talked about this in the fire department episode, but horses are not the most efficient way to respond to emergencies. So finally, in 1911, Grady purchases its first motorized ambulance, and it's driven by Mr. Kimball, that first patient. Another funny story for you guys, almost immediately after purchasing the ambulance on one of its very first runs to get a patient, before they even bought insurance for it, it gets stuck across the railroad tracks in Kirkwood. And yes, it gets hit by a train. Somehow everyone survives, but they actually had to borrow a motor ambulance from the H.M. Patterson Funeral Home for a few months while they repaired this one. A maternity ward opens in 1904, and just two years later, the the city suffers through four days of a deadly race riot. If you haven't listened to that episode, you should, but during that weekend, Grady was full. All 110 beds were occupied, and the victims started being taken to police stations until those were also filled. Around this time, we see almost five, I think it is, other hospitals open in Atlanta. There's Georgia Baptist, Presbyterian Hospital, Seventh-day Adventist, Wesley Memorial, and Amster's Sanatorium, which is what we now call Piedmont Hospital. All of these would take the pressure off Grady, and they would allow Atlantans to have other places to go for care. But Grady is still full and overcrowded, and a new building is proposed. Now, the African-American wards at Grady um, are just not good. So they're turning away 20 people a day because there's no capacity. People are in hallways, they're in closets, there's bad lighting, falling ceilings, There's no maternity ward in the women's section, and there are stories of black women giving birth in alleyways behind hospitals, which also happened to be a red light district. So you can just imagine how that all worked. And this is a smaller point to bring up, and I'll talk about it more in another episode, but especially when you take the um, Dr. King birth home tour and they tell you that he was born at home in 1929, a lot of people think that that year sounds late for being born at home. But you have to remember in the African-American community, there was no place to have your baby other than at home. 
you know, this is 1910 and there is almost no capability for having your baby outside of home. By 1910, these wards are completely falling apart and then by 1912, they stop using them. The city approves a $3 million bond issue and the new building's completed in 1912. There's 110 beds, um, white only, and they took the old white ward and turned that into the black ward. And this is where we get the two Grady's, very literally a white Grady and a black Grady. And people actually would call them the Grady's until desegregation in the 60s. Everything was kept separate and everything except the operating room. Because of the fast-paced nature of an operating room, this was one of the hardest places to keep the races separate, and you'd often see a white person um, laying in a bed next to a black person. At this point, Emory donates um, one of their old buildings, the Atlanta College of Physicians and Surgeons, under the condition that it be only for the care of black residents and that Emory be in full control of the ward. By 1917, the Municipal Training School for Colored Nurses opened because there was a shortage of available white nurses. They only assigned um, black nurses to the black wards, but there are still no black doctors. The white and black nursing schools would combine in 1964, but the entire nursing program itself closes in 1982. In the 1920s, a Grady physician would be the first in Georgia to perform open heart surgery, and they'd open the world's first cancer center. Talk of desegregating the main hospital gained momentum in the 1940s, especially towards the end, there was a report on the state of African-American medical care. The idea of building a hospital for black residents garnered support from both sides. Um, and this is really, it was supposed to be a hospital for middle-class African-Americans in Atlanta. So for white people, this sounded great because it would keep them from having to desegregate Grady and then further reinforce the idea that Jim Crow is great and it works. Named for the white chairman of the Fulton DeKalb Hospital Authority, Hugh Spaulding, the Spaulding Pavilion would open in 1952. And at first they had extremely low occupancy rate until they realized that it's because African-Americans could not get coverage with Blue Cross Blue Shield, which was covering hospital care. Now, Hugh Spaulding actually um, fought that battle and had that overturned. And two years after opening the Spaulding Pavilion, a new building for the white Grady Hospital um, would begin construction. And this would bring in over a thousand beds and 17 operating rooms. True desegregation of Grady Hospital would not happen until the Supreme Court forced it to happen in 1962. In that same year, the hospital hires its first African-American doctor, Dr. Asa Yancey, who was also the first faculty member at Emory School of Medicine. And guys, the story of Grady Hospital goes on and on and on, and there are so many unique and interesting histories. There are really sad stories like the infant abduction of the late 70s, 80s, and 90s. I didn't even know this happened. <laughs> Recently, I stumbled on a podcast that told those stories and I will put a link um, in the show notes if anybody wants to listen to it. But I want to end today's episode with a disclaimer that there's a lot I had to leave out. If you have a great Grady story and you want to share with me, my contact information is always in the show notes. But also, if you want to know more, I encourage you to read this book or others. There's a lot to learn. My favorite part of this research was seeing how Grady Hospital connected to every single one of my other episodes. 
whether it was the victims of the race riot, the fire of 1917, the victims of the Weinkauf fire, those sickened and killed by the bad moonshine from the Prohibition episode, all of these stories involve Grady. When Margaret Mitchell, author of Gone with the Wind, was hit crossing Petrie Street, she was taken to Grady and it was there that she passed away. And I think this is the current story of the hospital. So for me, I don't always see the connection to it, and people in Atlanta don't see that. But when you piece these stories together, the hospital's 127-year history is so closely woven with the story of Atlanta and our story. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. I hope that everyone has a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.